Morena, kia ora everybody, what's up? Welcome to Brett Live. Uh, another day, another rolling, and I hope we are all A-OK in New Zealand. Hope life's great. Got music playing, studio rolling. Very happy with the setup. It's become pretty decent. Uh, today we're going to catch up with um, someone very important. Lots of titles, but what he is is a capitalist for good, and he is trying his best. Uh, John Holt, give a quick little update here. Uh, executive chairman and founder of All Things Considered, a trusted focus lens on the sustainability and ethics of the global clothing and fashion supply chain. Oh, it's going to be good. Uh, a serial founder and company director committed to growing high-impact, high-growth ventures that will better New Zealand. Fingers as many pies, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, John Holt. How are you, mate? I'll give you claps as well. Hold up. There you go. Get some claps. Oh, thank you so much. Good audience. Awesome. Very, very, very excited, very excited. Um, quick context, uh, how do you, uh, you're at a party, you're on your second Heineken, some young bucks come up to you and they're like, hey, what's your name? You're like, John. You're like, what do you do? How do you answer that question? Uh, well, it wouldn't occur because I don't drink anything in green bottles, but let's say it was as a panhead, I would say that I do my best, which uh, is a bit of a dickhead response, but um, it's kind of because I just really enjoy being involved in a, in a whole lot of things and and sort of learning and growing from them as fast as I can. So, I mean, it is kind of true, but it leaves people a little bit confused as to how to continue the next uh, part of the combo. There was a billionaire that I, um, a friend of mine had uh, his buddies with, and the first time he met him, uh, he said, oh, what do you get up to? And he's like, oh, better this, better that. No idea the dude's a billionaire. But then sometimes, I'm mean, guessing it potentially could come across like you're trying to be a, a dick, even though you potentially aren't. Um, yeah. Question. I was looking through your LinkedIn and you've had your fingers in many, many pies across many, many industries. Maybe we'll start, I guess I'm trying to maybe validate it for my future because I feel I'm going to be doing lots of different stuff as well. Um, do you, do, have you ever felt you've had a real job or have you always just kind of done, done your thing and enjoyed it? Like just give me your headspace when it comes to what's made you able to go so wide and, and far down the, the, the pipeline in many different industries and verticals. Yeah, I've definitely had real jobs. It's just that I wasn't overly good at them, um, especially the sort of um, oversight, sort of bossy piece. Um, so I, I, I'd loved a job um, back in the day for a, for a, you know, what was a fabulous company, and apologies to those that are in it now, although it doesn't really exist now. It was, it was Hewlett Packard, and, um, and I'm a historian by training, right? I went to university and did a Bachelor of Arts degree in, in uh, military history, um, and so I just loved the history of the company. And then I started working for them. And it was one of those companies that actually, actually, you know, you read the books about, you know, Hewlett and Packard and how they started the Silicon Valley thing and the little garage. And actually the culture and, 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 the, and the vibe of the company at that time was pretty much exactly as it was described. So it was a phenomenal experience and a real job. And I learned a lot, but I, I sort of got a title there quite early and worked mostly from New Zealand, but I worked on a couple of global projects as well. I was a bit of an entrepreneur, which I, I love the concept of. So, yep, real jobs, but um, sort of entrepreneurial rather than sort of standard rank and file. What do you think, um, if it were in 20 years ago, I guess entrepreneurship wasn't as much of a thing as it is today. Do you think the future of entrepreneurship for a lot of these bigger corporates who want to create speed proactively have strategies and nice safe boxes to try and bring in more crazy thinking internally with some type of entrepreneurs like like how do you think the the headspace of hr and good leadership is going to go when it comes to all this the great creativity that does exist but there clearly is always the battles between you know uh, putting people in the box if they've got entrepreneurial tendencies how do you think that's going to potentially shift in the next decade 
Um, well, I think it's going to shift majorly because I think if you don't actually become sort of, you know, way more creative and entrepreneurial in your thinking, you're just not going to exist as a big or a small organization because, you know, everything's flipped. It's a really cool time, I think. I mean, you mm. know, if you talk about branding, for example, there's, there's a bunch of the sort of old guard and, you know, creative agency land that I talk to who just truly believe that, you know, there's no control for a company over a brand anymore. Um, mm. And it actually just because digital was everywhere and you're so able to sort of interrogate everything that the consumer owns, what your brand looks like. And then that comes back to having to be super innovative and super fast moving, like, you know, used to be the tag of a startup entrepreneur. But I think a lot of companies are realizing that's actually just going to be have to be part of their DNA as well. So challenging because it's a tough, tough change to make, right? That's an interesting one from a brand perspective because even if you look at some of the different formats of how people are consuming content on, let's say, TikTok or tech, for example, is the way that, I guess, media was one-way street of like our voice. We're telling you what the message is. We're telling you what the brand is, stuff you listen. We've got the speakerphone. And even yeah. if you look at this, you know, the integration of technology being able to do like remixes and reels and different collabs and whatever, it's become a two-way conversation with the community. And weirdly enough, the, the long tail and halo effect of a bunch of those great creative ideas builds the brand way better out of the control than they potentially even thought of, right? So it's it, it's an interesting point on the media side that it's basically gone from one-way street to two-way highway, which is kind of cool, right? It's very cool. But, you know, to your point earlier, it just it just challenges thinking of a lot of folks who've been quite comfortable mm. with a, a sort of a point-and-shoot mentality, you know, especially around marketing. It's like go and tell the market that this product is good because of these things. Um, that's just not a brief that's very easy to fulfill anymore. So we've had plenty parts of the journey now, but I know that like right now, actually let's go here. The last 10, 10, 15 years or so, you've been able to see a lot of New Zealand businesses potentially trying to go global. Lots of local companies trying to, trying to hit the world. What is the biggest single hurdle that you've seen brands fail at that are local in New Zealand trying to go global in the last 15 years what is the single overarching there's like a what's the the overarching thread that you've found that is stopping more kiwi businesses win yeah so i boil it down to three things um the first is aspiration so you know i think we think we're talking and thinking big but um i don't actually think comparatively to the way say a silicon valley company or silicon valley founder thinks we're actually not thinking that big and that bold, um, you know, you talk to someone like Peter Beck, he's a, he's a really good yardstick on that in terms of, um, you know, if you're going to build a company, why don't you try and build a billion dollar company because the time and effort and the risk is going to be the same. I think the second thing is pace. Um, we like to think of ourselves as edgy, but when you get out into the world and you've had, you know, 11 years we've been doing Territory 3, which used to be known as, as Kiwi Landing Pad. And, you know, the, the fast eat the slow, basically. And so that's often not about, like, big wins um it's just about learning fast so it could be a lot of failures but like many of them learning getting there and surviving to actually find one that actually works and the third thing is culture um you know we talk about that c word a lot and everything but very few people actually execute it and that i think is the big hurdle you know whether it's your board whether it's like trying to replace yourself as the founder ceo that um that affects scalability the most I would say I would. I'm interested on the the um, the speed one, right? Because you think because we're small, we're fast and nimble. But then 
a lot of it you're, you're saying is potentially not the case, which gets you a bit bummed. The vision and aspiration, you're, you're like, let's take on the world. And then I imagine a lot of it is, no, nah, no, nah, we'll just hang on to Pookie. She'll be sweet, mate. You know, like, yeah. it feels yeah, like I mean, a, a full, it feels tension, right? It doesn't feel like it's as, as aligned as it potentially could be. Totally, totally. And it's that, um, you know, wanting to kind of live the the vibe that, that is Kiwi, I think then there's a lot of great things about it, but it's all about, you know, it's like the secret of good comedy, right? It's, it's all about timing. And mm. so when you live that sort of, you know, if you go into a US market, you know, in terms of globalizing, and you, you will have seen this a lot. I mean, if you're not all about the hustle and just driving down to your pitch, you know, within five minutes of a meeting, people are a little bit off put. Um, like they'd enjoy talking to you about Lord of the Rings and the beautiful scenery and all that sort of thing. There's a time and a place for that, but you've got to get that sort of first comfort level that there's something to talk about. And I think we're, I think we're challenged by, by thinking that way. And, and then, you know, to your question, you've got to talk about what your aspiration is. And we're sort of like, oh, you know, I don't want to tell too many people I'm, I'm going to climb Everest. I think I'll just sort of do it and then maybe, you know, tell a couple of people later. I always think about um, if a million New Yorkers turned up in Auckland, I wonder how the hustle culture would actually change to get things. And they had obviously plugins to global markets. I wonder how, um, how, how bigger and faster businesses in New Zealand would actually get simply oh from God. the culture I mean, of like, HOSPO yeah. would go down in a heartbeat, right? And imagine a New Yorker getting the average New Zealand service, you know, asking for a different uh, milk and a coffee and, or, you know, diff- or a hamburger without buns and, and being told, no, no, it's not on the menu. I mean, there'd be riots in the street. Yeah, how many did you say we're coming down? A thousand? Yeah, no, a million. Oh, a million. Jeez, no, we couldn't handle that. It'd be a national disaster, mate. Um, you know, so how do you think... changing culture. Yeah, so I want to talk on that. How do you think the culture changes with the headspace of business leaders that are wanting to try and go global? How does... It's clearly something that's in the DNA of many, you know, either not to want to be, I don't know if it's a segue into many tall poppy thing or anything, but just, you know, you're talking about Everest, but don't tell anyone being bigger and aspirational. How do you make, how do you feel that business leaders in New Zealand can make a culture shift to help more of these founders actually pop and blow up and actually try and go and do it to make, you know, it's like, it's okay to be aspirational and bigger and, you know, level up. Like how this clearly isn't a, Hey, you can be all you can be. Like, what what do you feel needs to change for New Zealand leaders in 10, 20 years to actually have better alignment with those three problems that you see there, John? So for me, it's um it's about and you know, COVID has really, really just exposed this big time, in my opinion. It's 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 about having those softer skills and actually truly having them. So I'm talking about things like humility, um, and I'm talking about things like agility, and we talk about them all the time. You know they've been they've been verbalised and popularised by by actually mostly kind of therapists, right? You know the Brene Browns mm. and the Esther Perels. But that that sort of humility and agility basically says to your question, um, I'm a leader that accepts that I need to go in much smaller steps because I'm actually um, you know I've, I've got the humility to realise that it's all new rather mm. than the traditional leadership you know mould, which is it's actually a bad thing to show vulnerability around the fact that you don't know how this is going to play out so instead of building this big strategy and vision for stuff you go let's just go in much smaller steps and see whether that works and then go to the next step and then go to the next step but just as importantly let's actually not go to the next step because it's pretty clear that it's not working and I think you know that whole idea that you bring someone into your organization to lead it who's had this you know multi-chapter experience as a CEO or a senior leader 
and that's actually what you hire for. Um, I mean, what experiences for most CEOs would have been relevant to COVID, right? You know, a lot of companies lost 100% of their revenue. You know, best practice is you do a worst case scenario that, you know, one day you lose 40% of your revenue and this time you're facing like, so it's just not something that, um, that you can do that historical sort of, yep, I know what to do. You know, I did it in the, I did it in the 90s or whatever it is and, and you know, this is what we're going to do. So it's an interesting segue into uh, leadership through COVID. In the last 18 months in New Zealand, who do you think have been a couple of the standout leaders that have led the right way for their businesses that you've seen personally? And if, yeah, just, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, um, I love the work of, of people like Rob Campbell um, at a governance level, uh, just writing and embracing you know, the, the, the change from the point of view that it's a massive change that's just going to kind of take us time to, to adapt. And I mean, he's been very um, revolutionary, I think, in a lot of opinion around leadership and governance for a long time. But, uh, you know, the sorts of organisations, obviously, he's been involved in, they were seriously smashed um, by, uh, by just the impact on, on customers and revenue for, for those businesses. But, but as well as just sort of um, adopting this, you know, one step at a time, you know, don't, don't panic. Uh, and I think also the humanity side of things too, you know, the mm. wellness and mental health thing we talk about. There's a lot of leaders out there that, you know, because of what I just talked about before, you know, because there has been no playbook, have been seriously challenged um, about the fact that they don't have an instant answer. And so, mm. you know, I think there's a number of folks out there that, you know, have, have sort of put some, Put some uh, some planks out in front, which just say, look, you know, that's okay. Number one, and, and number two, you know, just take take smaller steps and kind of trying to figure this out, and, and be truly empathetic to to your stakeholders um, in a way that you probably never have been before. Do you think COVID's exposed more good leaders, or it's exposed more bad leaders? I just think it's tested um, really. You know, when when you have everybody, we all have peaks and, and, and troughs of, of stuff that we do around our skill sets and our, um, you know, our core competencies. And I think there's probably, um, there's probably a mix in terms of some people who've actually had a lot more ability to, you know, to embrace the change and the uncertainty faster that perhaps weren't sort of performing as well in the, in the traditional context. But um, if you ask me whether it was a net situation, I think most leaders would tell you that it's probably the most significant challenge to them leading an organisation um, that they've ever had in their careers. Do you think? Uh, how, how do you think business leadership will change in the next within the next decade from the experience of COVID? Do you think it's going to get younger? Do you think it's going to get more tech, more braver? Like, what what are the big shifts you think will happen in terms of the? the C-suite and a bunch of these, we'll go for these bigger corporates and the, you know, the, the bigger, the bigger ones in, in the town. Well, I think that was already happening in terms of that. I, I love the work that uh, Mei Chen and her team are doing in a super diversity institute. So I, I think it was already happening in terms of embracing the fact that you have to have more diverse leadership and more diverse uh, voices and thoughts at the, at the top table. And of course that goes way beyond gender. You know, that goes to people who really understand the context of, you know, not just a national disaster, but a, mm. but a, you know, a global disaster and all the things that, A, you have to respond to, and then B, you have to now bake in and plan into the new world in terms of uh, imagining the, you know, the next 
thing because it will be a next thing and how you handle that. So I think, you know, a lot of folks um, are thinking about that already. It's the first time I think we've had five generations of humans in the workforce at the same time. So, you know, you've got really rapid shifts in consumerism that you've never had as well. So, you know, these Generation Zs, I think they represent about 30% of the consumerism in the world today already, and they're, and they're headed towards 50. And that's sort of like the, you know, the early 20s um, to, to late 20s category. So how, if you're, you know, 50 plus years old, um, are you going to really understand that sort of, uh, consumer segment as they become a massive part of your audience or your customer base really quickly without actually having some of them at the table. Good point. So right now, say for those, that, ne- that next gen that's coming up, where do you think the biggest opportunity potentially commercially for New Zealand as a whole is right now in the next decade? At a macro, globally, where do you see the sweet spot that potentially New Zealand should be trying to go for well i, I def, definitely think it's in um two things it's it's weightless so you know more tech and innovation but i think we need to be really careful about you know benchmarking where we're at with that um you know we we have these sayings and they you know they were kind of cool in their time you know punching above our weight or you know um biggest tech sector export and so forth i think there's a lot of work to do around that and especially around productivity um and then the second piece is, uh, you know, more in the mainstream, I think, you know, from volume to value. So, you know, Explain that for me. Well, you know, you've got um, our agriculture sector and so forth exporting and, and have been exporting for years. But there's a reality, I think, that's finally coming to bear that um, we're never going to open a market to the point where, you know, the, the, the headline was we nailed China and um, now they order pretty much all their milk products from us or all their meat from us. Um, so, you know, because we just could never supply it. And so that change to actually stopping trying to achieve those sorts of goals and moving more to the, you know, let's get the most value and the most yield out of the things that we can supply, I think is a, um, is a shift again that was already happening, but um, I think it's just going to accelerate. Do you get... Um more hopeful or fearful for the future of New Zealand business with the leadership that we've seen so far in the last 18 months? Well, I'm an eternal optimist. Um, it's just uh, wired into my DNA. So, you know, of course we're going to get better, but uh, it's really about like how quickly. And, mm. and I think that's just about, um, you know, embracing a lot of the concepts that we've, you know, we've seen in the startup world for a long time, you know, talked about, um, but also being careful about some that just don't, don't, uh, translate you know i just don't get mm. this agile thinking type stuff in corporates um, i probably just made a lot of enemies doing that but i just i just don't get it it just doesn't seem to me to be a natural sort of productivity game well this seems like a perfect segue john into um the anti-consultancy um at a top line i have got to i guess on the come up i would see consultants these big brands and stuff and i would always not quite get it and then I started meeting them and getting to know them and I started to understand a little bit about it. But the idea of the, um, and coming through the media landscape, there was always this kind of talk about the anti-agency of, yep. you know, they're going slow cruise ship, we're going speed. It was very like, it was kind of agile thinking to do it differently, but actually on the executing. What does 
the anti-consultancy mean? What's the genesis? What's Why does there need to be an anti in your potential opinion? And at a macro, if you talk about consultancy in the big world of, of corporates, where's it potentially gone wrong and where should it potentially go for the better? So I don't think um, the end result has necessarily gone wrong, but I just think it's become quite cumbersome and, and back to what we were talking about before in terms of shorter steps. I think there's a lot of value being missed just in the near term. So, you know, when, you, when you're in a big company and you've got stakeholders, you're publicly listed and, you know, there's a whole lot of compliance and regulatory stuff, you, you are constrained in terms of how fast you move. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you can't get perspective, you know, in the, in the now about things that could move the needle that, A, you know, already exist and you kind of didn't realise how powerful they were. You were sort of underplaying them. Uh, and B, you know, they're delivered to you in a very concise um, short form. And so that, to me, is the sort of anti-consultancy concept. It's the, it's the, you know, we would love to deliver, and I'm working on this um, concept um, with a with a young, uh, very aspirational chap called Mitchell uh, Winton Smith, and we're, we're we're riffing on this idea that you know when you look at things like sustainability, you know that's an absolute mind frick for uh, most large companies. Uh, very confusing. Uh, compliance is coming in and. I think there's an opportunity just to use the power of, you know, people like Mitchell, you know, he's in that um, 20 to 30 category, uh, bring them together in sort of micro interviews rather than the traditional sort of large scale research surveys and deliver like 10 slides in terms of insights where, you know, we've asked a whole bunch of people, maybe a hundred, um, what they think of a brand in terms of being an employee of it or a customer of it and just, dig in and increasingly use their own knowledge to just deliver like 10 slides in 60 days and, and just help people understand that, you know, they're either on track or off track or there's a new thing. Mm. Um, it doesn't mean that you replace the consultancy and anti-consultant actually me. I'm, I'm ADD. I don't really focus on things for terribly long. I like short, pithy stuff. And I think a lot of executives and boards are going that way too, right? I mean, there's only so many hours in the day. And so many things increasingly that you have to focus on, it's just getting to that and, and really not wanting to build as a business in terms of an anti-consultancy, a sort of a track of like, oh, great, we've just opened up a niche there where we can help the client with another 50 hours or another 100 hours. I'd rather just deliver something valuable on a really tight scope in 60 days, um, walk away with a, with a feedback that it like really got them thinking about one or two things and then move on to the next one and then maybe come back with a, with a different scope. But you know, not have a plan to go from five consultants in that organisation and that customer to 50 and, and those sort of traditional sort of, you know, blow it up and add value to them. At, but, at John, you're, you're missing, you're totally missing the point, mate. That, that's how they make the money, John. It's, it's the more people in the hours, John. <laughs> yeah, I know, but that's the volume to value thing, mate. It's like, you know, if you're actually delivering value in a small period of time to directors who can actually understand it on a slide rather than waiting five years for a you know, 500-page report about all the things they could do as a corporate, um, people will pay more and more for that for a very small number of people uh, mm -hmm. rather than try to get a margin out of you know, a very large number of people. Sort of. and, and it's that classic thing, you know, you've built software products and stuff. You, the more, and I've never had this solved or talked about effectively by anybody that I respect as a software developer. You know, it's this anti-correlation between the more software developers you put on a project, the less productive and the less quality outcomes you actually get. That's a, um, hmm. a fascinating area. You know, it just doesn't correlate to put more in and get more out. Or you could, you could easily argue that whenever you're in your, 
when you're if you're in a border if you're in a meeting with more than nine people <laughs> versus three, I think we we know who's potentially going to have more of an open dialogue, who's going to get further down the pathway, who's going to be able to succinctly, you know, curate the essence of what they're trying to do with potentially the best best IP. I would I would I mean you, you get to sit in the other organizations. Maybe do you think there's a because on consultancies there's a lot of you know people who do you know one man band consultancies or one woman band consultancies, small different units. Do you think there's a ninja move on how these businesses could potentially be structured differently in terms of the remuneration to be able to generally have a bigger, faster, better business that's more valuable than the volume of Oh, cool! I pay you a hundred bucks an hour, and I charge you out at two fifty, which is kind of feels like it's been the copy paste model for the last last little while. Is there some thoughts in your head on how you feel that pricing potentially could change for a ninja move for you know consultancy two point Yeah, I, I totally think there are a number of ways you could do that, and you know one of them is that value play where you know if you're confident that you can just make a couple of hits and you're and you've got a sort of trusted relationship with that client. Uh, putting some money at stake that, you know, really is focused on actually delivering one of those hits. So, you know, you pay me, uh, you know, two or three X, the normal rate to your point of how things are built uh, based on getting what you want. I mean, the tricky thing about that is, 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 as I say, is, is really trust. Um, And I think the other model I love, and I definitely want to put it into a business um, before I leave this earth is where the price you deliver the product or service to the customer um, keeps going down, you know, similar to a subscription service, but the driver for it going down is quality referrals of other people that have the problem. So, you know, so... You, so how would that manifest in the real world? Yeah, how would that... So you how would pay you me integrate that into a year, and, and I go, hey, we've got this sort of approach to, to, to pricing structure, which says if, if two of your referral, um, you know, prospects to me turn into customers, then your fee goes down to nine grand. And so, you know, they basically potentially you get to the, you know, I think a really cool um, spin up of this, which let's say, and, you know, it speaks also to a quality product and lifetime value of customer where, you know, they get down for that initial product or solution to almost zero. Um, but the, you know, the only way they would do that is by bringing you in a whole bunch of customers, which, you know, spins up and informs what other solutions you could provide for that first customer, even though they're getting the first component free. Um, and then they roll on the second and it's the same model. And if you're really delivering value, you know, why wouldn't they? It's super easy in theory um, and there's still a theory, you know, for them to just continue to, to refer people and be just slightly more driven to that, um, telling you know, how good, good and how pleased you are with the product or the service by, uh, by having that sort of model and saving the money. Well, it's yeah, referral, but a scaled system scaling down over time. So instead of just like refer once, it's a it's an ongoing piece, right? And then it keeps the relationship tighter as more of a partnership instead of a transaction because you're going to have to maintain the quality of service over that time to keep that going back down, right? Interesting. It's kind of a cool idea. Um, what 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 part of what type of business do you think that would be easiest right now to potentially try and integrate in? Some type of consultancy, I'm imagining, or or. Um, well, I, I think, yeah, I think a software subscription service, um, and you know, you, I think you can always put gates on it in terms of you know, because people buy a product or solution in software, and ultimately, uh, a lot of the time, they're really only using a relatively small component of the features and functionality. Mm. Uh, it's just that you don't really understand what's the most valuable out of those features and functionality until you get people at scale. You know, that first customer might just have been relatively random in terms of wanting function X. 
Um, so yeah, I think that would be the natural place to um, to trial something like that because you'd use that data and that scale and getting there faster through you know a referral program because it's kind of you know you've got a cost of getting the word out there as well, so it's going to save you money on the demand generation stuff. Um, but you're also going to see where the real sort of affinity to the functions and stuff, and that and that's one of the challenging things about software is you know one big customer sends you on a on a sort of a um, a tangent that's actually not that useful to anybody else and you've only got limited dev resources and you want that customer so you go and deliver that and then suddenly you realize just basically gone from configurable to customized yeah i i like it how it goes from long tail to uh, short tail to long tail because they'll be having to you know the the quality of uh, interactions and relationships will take it definitely from more transactions to partnerships and i think that over the longer time and you're right if they're just getting that first component by the time it circles back around to all those others there's going to be that second one and so it almost creates its own like mini growth loop of of value and not so much a a, a pipeline and funnel as such which just sort of uh, the word funnels always just kind of piss me off as it feels like they come in and they go out well in the real world, it doesn't work like that because, and then they come back again. You'd have new products, new services, new jobs. Everyone has new titles. It, I think um, going to more to the circular economy, not necessarily just with sustainability, which this is a great potential segue into this next bit, but actually more just about thinking. Um, yeah, it pisses me off when people are so transactional with uh, business relationships, not realizing that in 5, 10, 20, 15, I mean, you've been around the block a few times. I can pretty much guarantee you that. 100% of your Rolodex you've crossed paths with in a different potential role or organization or something 10, 20, even 30 years ago. So um, I want to get into all things considered. What is it and why should everyone care? And I mean, I know, but they might not know, but you can Yeah, <laughs> Yeah, no, thanks. Thanks for the segue and the opportunity to pitch. Um, so all things considered, um, my uh, co-founder, Andrea van der Meel, and, and I are on a mission to shine a lens on the sustainability or not of the fashion industry so you know quick education fashion industry second the largest um, contributor of significance to landfill through essentially you know fast fashion clothing textile waste um, and uh, basically more emissions if you're going to go down that sort of carbon track than the aviation sector um, which just fascinated me when i found that out as a you know where's a problem to solve so what we're doing is, um, you know, people are getting really confused. There's, um, there's this market for, you know, how you used to have awards, right? You know, so that, uh, you know, you, you win this award for, you know, Best Bank, and it's a, it's a banking awards brand and, and all these sorts of things. Well, you know, kind of fashion has gone that way around sustainability. So it's sort of like the back of a cereal packet. You, you look at a company's website, an Adidas or an H&M or what have you, and you'll see a whole lot of certifications and industry organizations they've joined up with, or you'll see some initiatives that they've built internally, or you'll see some tools that they're using that sort of validate the fact that they are having you know, big hits on these key sustainability issues. And, and sustainability uh, you know, might be obvious, but I found that it isn't as obvious as I thought it was. It's not just about the sort of you know, the environmental stuff. A lot of it's about the societal stuff as well. So what All Things Considered is doing is basically taking you know, what's presented by one of these brands on their own website, usually on a sustainability page, putting it on our platform in one place and doing the same for all these certifications and so forth, which they you know, uh, uh, say they are members of. And just helping consumers just weed through that to get you know, an ultimate answer around, do I feel that this brand that I buy clothes from currently is a sustainable brand? Is it authentic? Is it on track to 
you know, trying to reduce some of the largesse and the, and the really um, negative contributors that fashion has had to the environment and society. It's a chunky, chunky market. Um, I, you know, you say the word fast fashion. That's what I just actually writ- written down there before. For those that aren't aware exactly what fast fashion is, can you please give a quick 101? Because I think everyone has probably done it and they've potentially not realized it and they think it's rad and cheap because, again, this T-shirt for, you know, whatever, but they may need 100 of them, which kind of stuffs them up. But, yeah, fast fashion in a nutshell. Give us the 101. Yeah, so um, it's kind of the antithesis of you, mate, because I remember actually that was one of your things, right? Your, your, your black T-shirt and just, you know, wear it, wear it over and over. But um, for a lot of people, it's, it's, it's getting a set of clothing um, for a particular event um, or, or very small period of time. And rather than sort of putting that in the wardrobe to wear next season or next, uh, next time, it's just actually a conscious decision that you're buying it as cheap and you're essentially going to throw it away. Yeah. Um, after one or two wears, right? You know, you're not, you're just not going to because that's the way they've targeted you to get, you know, that continued, repeated sort of customer engagement, and it's usually shit quality. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Okay. Not that I'm going to go on a, a million different fashion tangents, but um, I was v- very fortunate, I guess, in my headspace of how I think about clothing where you know former life i was a professional snowboarder and basically since as soon as i left high school everyone would i would get paid to wear brand i would get paid to wear the latest cool shit rocket cool sweet logo the second the day i stopped riding professionally i gave you know i gave all my stuff away um and then i couldn't it was a mental thing that i was like wait a second why am i going to pay flipping 60 bucks for that t-shirt to wear their logo on my shit stuff them they should pay because i guess in my headspace they had to pay it so i just was rocking just blanks but then I got, I was just down the, I still to this day, we're, we're basically we're blanks every single day. But then I was started thinking about, well, the, what's the quality of these blanks? And so weirdly enough, when it comes to to this, for years I've actually been trying to figure out, okay, what's going to last ages that I can just rock? And and it's obviously, I found a good cheap one to do it. But then it comes on the other side where it's like, oh, if it's cheap, it's not sustainable, this and 100% organic and this. And then you get the battle on the other side. So I'm like, Shit, how do I meet in the middle here? And I'm interested on the fast fashion side because if you think of like the, especially in America, the consumerism of how it's so dispensable for these things, it blows my flipping mind, man. Because I'm like, man, you could wear that shit forever, but they don't and they buy cheap and then they end up spending more. Like when I got married, I got, I need to bear dress shoes. I'm like, dude, I'm just going to get some baller things. I bought one pair of epic dress shoes and I've had them for the last 10 years and it's been flipping yep. sweet because they're solid, epic quality. And then simultaneously, I've had a couple you know, cheap shirts and next thing you know, you fast forward a couple of years, you've kind of gone through five or six shirts when you could have just had one real epic, you know, Crane Brothers properly curated, whatever you, what it is. So how do you think maybe attacking that, how do you think you attack this? Is it from brand down at the top? Is it culture at the bottom? Because I think now when it comes to, if you even just look at technology and social media and Instagram, whatever, this consumption of what's hottest, hottest and latest, this refresh mode is now again directly correlated because you've got content integrating with commerce in real time, which yep. I'm finding very interesting watching as it comes out. How do you see the future of, I guess, content and commerce as it starts to weave with the battle on top of, you know, sustainability and trying to do the right thing? Because that feels like the battle is going to get harder. Yeah, I mean, you've hit the nail on the head, you know, with that narration. Um, there's just a number of aspects to it. So so starting at the top, I don't think anyone achieves 100% sustainability, and that's talking as a consumer, as a human, as a, as a, as a fashion brand. 
But um, I think the key thing is the authenticity of the story and the strategy that you're going to take. Like, for example, um, my um, uh, you know play as a brand on sustainability is to is to make timeless, high quality items that would sit in someone's wardrobe quite comfortably for years, and mm. make them and make them expensive. You know, because good stuff is expensive to make. Uh, but make them timeless. And so that's just a signature jacket or, you know, something that you will, you know, you might store it away at winter or bring it out in summer, whatever it is, but, you know, and that's sustainable. So that's not a, that's not the sort of level I'll go to next, which is the, you know, what's it made of and, you know, is it, and, you know, where's it come from and is it, you know, sort of natural fibres or is it synthetic? That's, uh, you know, you've kept it out of landfill, which is one of our great problems. Um, you've embraced, um, you know, the concept of just basically that, you know, they, they say actually one of the solutions um, to the, to the, you know, to the vehicle um, emissions and, you know, all the largesse of that is actually just to hold on to the car you currently have literally until it rusts out and, and falls to pieces. Like that would actually be the most impactful way to arguably to, to, to hit the whole sort of, you know, emissions from vehicles scenario because it would cut out the new car market. What we have now is sure we have a lot of new EVs, but if you look at the supply chain around these, and this is very relevant for the fashion industry, that is, you know, where a lot of uh, environmental and societal damage comes. And you know, fashion is a classic one for that. You know, you've got, you know, coming back to your question, this other approach, which is, I will still provide you with a, a low cost item, but it is highly recyclable. So, you know, hmm. it's not going to last as long, but there's actually a process and a system underneath it where you can see as a consumer where it's going to end up and what it's going to end up as, as part of that full sort of circular approach. Do you see, so there's obviously two battles within obviously sustainability and, you know, re recycling and use of it and price. Let's jump into some tech stuff. You know this shit pretty well. Do you, how much of an, how critical do you think the technology of blockchain will be in the sustainability future for fashion? Do you think really about interesting. Yeah, I mean, uh, think about it a lot because basically what we want to do with all things considered is create ancestry.com for any brand. So, you know, a lot of brands don't even understand and, and it's, mm. it's often just impossible to understand how to get right back to the cotton field where that T-shirt was grown because there's aggregators and there's wholesalers and there's things in the middle and you previously really haven't had any core reason Um to, to think about that. So blockchain, I guess, was naturally seen as something that would just nail that problem. But talking to a few of the, you know, the more advanced um, folks in the fashion industry that have investigated and, and actually tracked literally back to, um, you know, if you, there's a company called Little Yellow Bird in Wellington, a few, um, you know, they've literally got a tag on um, some of their items that you can tell you which cotton field, which rain-fed cotton field it was, the, the cotton was grown in, which is just rad in terms of supply chain transparency. But a lot of that tech was never was not actually ended up being blockchain because it didn't really provide uh, anything extra. The challenge was just how to integrate the systems from the different providers. When you think about you know what what components does a jacket actually have in it when you mm. put it on your um, uh, you know put it on your person after you bought it from the shop. If you go right back to the you know the the, the creation of the nylon zips and the and the fabric itself it's huge it's a huge supply chain so one in nine humans in the world is employed in the fashion industry supply chain that's how big it is huh yeah i'm wondering as brands try to differentiate themselves how they sell it tell it i mean it's all storytelling right but how they tell that story and the narrative of of their authenticity within it right um 
here you go. Um, someone just says uh, LinkedIn user. Don't know why this doesn't say who it is, but whoever it is, bloody thank you. Uh, Block Text is leading the way. Graham Ross is your man. All right, we can check that out. Yeah, cool. Um, how do you? Yeah, I'm, I get really intrigued with a, a, a solution like that because I think about you know brand storytelling with it. There's going to be, and obviously maybe on the other side of it, instead of blockchain at the front for the story, is then after it's done, potentially this whole upcycling type scenario. I've seen yep. a couple of cool people on um, on Instagram and stuff be able to you know. There's two things I've seen in the fashion side for it. Post there's there's this kind of retail arbitrage from Salvation Army to Trade Me. That's yep. that, and there's another one of um, basically design skill sets, taking materials and bringing it into something else, sort of custom one-off pieces. Like, how do you think for like obviously these things we can do at the front this upcycling what to potentially do with it the this recycling opportunities of what could be done with with fast fashion after is there some practical tactical ways you think people could potentially try and address the end of life of existing fast fashion to think about something a bit differently are there brands is there opportunities is there like where's your headspace when it comes to that yeah, so I've executed on that as well, rather than just throwing stones at it. So um, I'm very proudly the chair of a, um, of a charitable trust uh, in Potterua, um just out of Wellington here, called Free For All. So it's freeforall.co.nz. And um, we basically intersect op shops, uh, deceased estates, um, university halls when they have you know disposable items they only use for one 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 season, one one uh, uh, you know performance year or, or education year. And we put them in a big shop, which we've just um, increased. Um, it's now five times the size of the uh, of the last one. Five dollars entry fee. Um, you can go in. Uh, we have commercial scales at the end of the process. You can take as many books, games, toys, clothes, uh, some electrical items that have all been tested, and and walk out with them, weigh them, and we thank you for contributing to our core mission, which at Free for All is, is waste minimisation. But in actual fact, your question every day out there, we divert about a thousand kilograms of mostly clothing and textile away from uh, landfill. But the cool byproduct, you know, it's still a, a waste minimization play as we give it to people who um, makes you, you know, brings tears to your eyes. I was out there the other day with a few folks just showing them through, and you've got a, a little kid, you know, who's found some teacups, plastic teacups, putting them in her shopping bag, doing shopping. Like she, I'm sure she would probably just not have the financial capacity or appearance wouldn't have the capacity to go and do that at, uh, at Toy World and, uh, and having a great time, uh, five bucks. And so, you know, I think, and to your question, you know, that's how you really intersect stuff. So we call that a franchise for good. So, we, you know, we're quite happy and we built a um, putty, uh, one of the companies that I, that I chair and I've been involved as a, as a sort of shareholder and, and, and director for many years. Um, we built the website for them. So it's sort of national website. You can basically exchange for free so i think there's a there's a lot of those quite simple community oriented ways that can really start that diversion process and and also just have a huge amount of good in in, in the uh, in doing it by just giving the stuff to people who uh, who need it so the franchise for good i love the the concept how does free-for-all scale how can it scale what's the because i'm sure you're obviously if you're at the intersection of all this other stuff you've got a conduit and there's kind of a magnet attraction for i guess product how's what's the thinking of how we would like this to potentially go because imagine if it's a blueprint this feels like this is would be pretty kind of easy to yeah you would you would think wouldn't you um but it's tough because i think we're just in the early stages of people understanding the correlation between the problem 
and impactful solutions. Um, and the mm. gap, you know, to your question is people. I mean, basically, if you're listening to this and you have a group around you that has access to a space, you know, a warehouse or a retail shop that, you know, you can get for cheap or no rent or what have you. Some people who, you know, all our people at Free For All are volunteers. Um, we have a van which goes and picks up stuff and we try and make a revenue stream out of that. Um, and yeah, you need some, you know, some marketing collateral. Uh, we have all that documented so we can give you the brand and everything else. But it's been tough to get people to give it a go in their area. We've had a lot of inquiries, but, you know, a lot of folks are sort of seeing it as a, as a cheap way to get access to only the best stuff and, you know, then put it on Trade Me. And, you know, and we're quite happy with that sort of collateral um, risk, I guess, uh, because ultimately, as long as it doesn't end up in landfill, we don't, you know, we don't really care. That's our core mission. But, yeah, I think we're just in our infancy of, you know, to, to me, I mean, I'm, I'm biased, obviously, but it's just a no-brainer solution for a community group or, or someone to, to replicate in their own location. And there are similar sort of concepts that people are doing. But, you know, to your point, you don't get scale if everyone's just sort of individually uh, building these things. You could, you could have much more impact much faster if it was, uh, was a little bit more leveraged. Does it feel, two questions. One, do businesses like the Salvation Army and other you know, hospices and stuff, do they see you as competition? And then two, in terms of scalability, instead of dealing with individuals, couldn't this plug directly in with like local councils and towns and stuff? How's those conversations sort of gone? Yeah, well, I mean, again, this comes back to, to how many hours there are in the day. And Dee, our founder, I mean, she she works incredibly. I, 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 Dee stalked me on LinkedIn and um, and I have a rule in life, I'll meet anybody once. And um and we had a meeting and she, and she took me to her house and what she was doing was doing free for all on her front lawn. Um, and to Jason, her husband's, um, uh, you know, he said, you know, he was fine with it, but you know, their entire double garage was floor to ceiling with stuff that she had gone to op shops uh, because op shops run much more of a retail model. You know, it's a per item cost. They've got so much shelf space and sometimes when, you know, seasons change or, or stuff just isn't selling, um, they've got to get rid of it. And they've got mm. to put it out the back. And what a lot of them do is they put it out the back and they you know, put it in a skip or they put it in something that just comes and picks it up and puts it in the landfill. So Dee, um, you know, I was really attracted to Dee as, a, as a, someone to really help uh, because she was, you know, she was going into those discarded items from a lot of op shops and saying, hey, you know, 95% of the stuff's actually okay. And mm. we can actually put it in there. And so that's why we have, just have an enormous amount of space of you down here. Um, uh, you know, when you're back in, in NZ, I'd you know, welcome you to come out and see it. I mean, people people hear me talk about it, but when they see these towers of banana boxes of clothing and items that we have, um, you know, we could have way more people we could be helping coming in the door if we actually got the word out a little bit wider and faster. But it's it's tough because there's so many things to do. That's the thing is trying to um, get the the priorities of your time. So on that, maybe before we go, I'm interested to ask about on the investing front. If you're a young investor, a young founder now and you're, you're into the ecosystem, you've obviously been around the block a couple of times and you've seen um, you've seen pretty much most things, I'd imagine. How would you, at what advice, twice. at least twice, definitely twice. I've gone half a block. I, I've stopped for a steak and cheese pie on the corner of the second thing. But um, how do you, how, how would you structure or how would you prioritize a young person's time? now if they were to, if they're a founder in New Zealand right now like how would you think about their time and allocation prioritization of what truly is important for a founder trying to get either investment and grow their business in 2020 shit, what are we at, 21 now 
Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I would prioritise it around um, probably less about building early, um, more about showing a true understanding of two things. One, uh, a true grasp of the problem you're solving and being able to articulate that in a really compelling way to anybody really. I mean, obviously investors and potential employees and so forth, but you know, getting people on board to just let you um, spend more time with them uh, is all about you know, showing them either you know, they can make a ton of money out of it or it's something impactful that they're interested in learning more about. So that would be the, the first thing. And then really educating yourself and even just showing that that is the skill you're demonstrating about how you would have the capacity, not necessarily to take that idea to the full scale, you know, IPO business exit, but how you, you have the capacity to understand because good investors have been around the block a long time. They know, you know, when you say it's going to take three years and we'll make 50 mil, that it's more like 10 years and you might make 15. Um, but what they want to increasingly invest in is people who are self-aware, you know, to your question at that early stage, who don't come, you know, saying they've got all the answers, but show a growth mindset and show that they've already done the research about the challenges they'll face and they've got some, some really well thought through ideas and where the time comes in about how to, how to address those. There'll almost certainly be different approaches, but it just shows that you know what you're, you're up for. I always say venture is adventure. Just the A and the D fell off, you know, quite a while ago, um, in some uh, in some book. Yeah, I. It's it's good advice because a lot of the time, with you know, I'm 36 now. Um, the you don't want to take away the energy and the passion that's in them, but then there's this other layer of commercial sensibilities and realities where every uh, you know. Uh, potential projected PL is in the third year hockey stick, and you're like, yeah, okay. But I think maybe the, the, the one on top of it is a self awareness piece of realizing that realistically, the even though the nuts and bolts of the details are clearly not lowered out, and maybe you've got some naivety to those things, is that they're back in the jockey, not the, the horse. That's like, you know, do I like you? Do I trust you? Do 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 you get it? Do I know you get it? Will you be willing to learn? Do you have that growth mindset? Will you be willing to listen? Are you confident enough, but not too much of an asshole that you will tell everyone to piss off and just do your own stubborn thing, even though you don't know what yeah. you're doing? Like it's 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 very much it feels doubling down even more so the same way you're potentially talking about you know income versus impact it's kind of going from those hard skills to more of the softer ones to still have that vision and stuff but be able to really sort of curate to maybe we can just call them better humans maybe maybe just bit more better humans are getting more money maybe that's maybe that's the lesson i reckon i i mean you know that's the i think if you you know take the historian's view of it you know a lot of these organizations that you know, don't even know you know didn't really sort of embrace the concept of sustainability but just built what they thought was a really human-centered you know purposeful business you know sometimes starting mm. 50 100 years ago they actually show all the attributes that now all these other companies are trying to grab and you know immediately latch onto because of compliance or consumer demand and stuff so it is is that absolutely agree with you in terms of that mindset and that whole uh, you know uh, people-centric and, and self-awareness piece that, that i think is just increasingly critical not just for you know a young founder starting up but you know, that's the reflection a lot of our, our top-end leaders have to have as well. Well, it's definitely trickier to, you know, when you're young alpha male, specifically when you're like on that, that you've got that like rah-rah flipping, just ante up, being able to have, you know, I think you see it like I was definitely that when I was in early 20s and, you know, I'm trying to slowly ma mature like some hopefully good wine. But 
I can still feel that energy when you see that young buck and it's so rad because it reminds you exactly how you were thinking, but at the same time you're like, oh, you've got a long way to go. And that's why it's kind of cool when you can go for more, more the EQ than the potential IQ. Um, you know, you can you know hire smart people, but being able to have those, you know, I think the other one thing as well is having the tough crew around who can have those harder sort of chats. I'm sure you've had to have many of them in the past with those type of things. And it probably becomes a lot easier if they're more, have got a bit of a growth mindset and not so blocked and walled off to, to actually listen, right? Especially even though they may not, um, the mentors may not have been there before, but wanting to know, you know, how to do it, potentially do it the right way. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and probably second only to the alpha female. Um, yeah. Because frankly, you know, in terms of high potential, I'd, I'd, if I had two equally, you know, high potential alpha male, alpha female, uh, I'd, I'd back the female just because. Oh, yeah, I just, I just okay. think the tenacity and the resilience. Uh, forgetting putting putting aside the whole gender equality thing, I just think that um, it feels to me like there's just more determination. Uh, assuming they've, you know, got to the same level of showing those sort of skills and growth mindset stuff we talked about, um, and you know, that's a that's a big topic, obviously, but. You know, it's it, this is a wacky world. You know, eighty percent of the decisions in consumerism are made by a female at the end of the day in terms of whether to pull the trigger and and swipe the card or or pay the money, and yet we just have this you know ridiculous sort of imbalance about who who leads these these different organisations. Like, you know, again, uh, it, you know, putting aside the gender equality thing, I just think it's a it's a ridiculous situation because of that market stat. Well, even the, um, the on the VC side, I think it was at like three, or it was definitely under 5% of female founders actually get the VC funding that sort of come out too. And yeah. it's interesting that because data has proven that it's actually better returns and investments. Of it. And exactly to your point, if the majority of the decision-making dollars are going to that, there's very, a very clear disconnect between that. And it's ironic coming from an older white dude named John to be saying that because literally the most popular name is they were saying there's more CEOs named John yeah, than there are females and it's like and it sucks it's like kind of Rob in some ways as well like he'll say stuff and it's like man for someone who had looks like that roles like that he should not be saying that but he just does and it's so yeah, good like, yeah. I love well, we have a support group for John's now I mean it's, in, it's <laughs> a real problem and we're doing okay but yeah we, 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 we would get smashed in that male pale stale stereotype well what you got the or Tom or someone you know, nah. Karen, Karen got taken and John got taken. <laughs> Karen and John got taken. What's the male equivalent of Karen? How can you be a male Karen? I'm fascinated by that. Oh, I'm sure one of the, the listeners of yours will jump in. And, and it's kind of always awkward too. Like I, I was on a call uh, recently with someone else named Karen. You just wonder, like because in the time of culture we're in, how much unnecessary shit she has to deal with just because like it's, it's kind of unfair. But so I guess someone's going to take a name. Yeah, isn't it radical? I mean, but isn't it radical how how that's bedded in for the Karens in the world? You know, many, most well, of them. CEO John as well. I, I've, CEO John's. CEO John's. And um, no, I definitely get it. Um, if people want to find out more about the, the free-for-all, um, you know, franchise for good, we're like, where can they go to and what can they do? Because it seems like a pretty interesting model that's clearly doing some good stuff. Um, plug away there. Yeah, no, thanks for that. So if you're in the Wellington region, you can actually come and see us. Or, or in fact, we have people coming from all over um, the lower North Island. But um, the store is in uh, Porirua, and uh, you can get the address. It's an Audi street, but you can get the address at uh, freeforall, one word, .co.nz. And uh, it's open seven days a week uh, from 10 till about 4 o'clock. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's a great place to go thrifting or op shopping uh, if you're into that mode, and, and also a great place to... Um, to just basically help us out by stopping the stuff going to landfill. And uh, all things considered, 
Where can they go to for yeah, that? Yeah, so we, we'd, we'd love um, your audience's help on that. Um, we're in beta, so we're just um, really riffing on whether we're getting things right. And we're, um, we're uh, alltc.co. And actually on that page, you can see a couple of letters from us uh, about, you know, our vision and what we want to do. So we're always open to feedback on whether that's on the right track. But you can also sign up for the beta, which is live now, and, uh, and actually experience it. We've got about 150 companies on the beta. Uh, and ironically, we've got about 120 certifications and associations already just linked to 150 companies. So even getting to that stage is showing you what a consumer problem it is. You know, almost as many claims and certifications and initiatives and innovations as there are actually companies on the beta. Interesting. Yeah, very cool. Well, look, I really appreciate your time, John. I know we've been um, crossing paths many years, and it's funny we haven't actually probably brought down in person, but obviously we've got a couple of uh, good mutual friends who are more than enough trouble, which is a conversation for uh, off offline. Um, and when I'm back in Wellies, I'd love to be able to uh, catch up in Lincoln, but definitely appreciate your time. Yeah, cool, mate. I've enjoyed it. Thanks very much for having me. Legend. I'll give you some, I'll give you some claps to, to, to leave. There you go. Oh, you get some awesome. There you go. Shot brother. <laughs> Cheers, man. Oh, wait, wait, where's the claps? Oh, have I stuffed the claps? Where was it? Oh, there we go. There were the claps. Uh, appreciate it, team. All right. Adios. Have a good day. Th big thanks to, um, to John for coming through. Good banter. Bloody great banter. And I'll be talking to you all soon. Adios, team.